This is Gil Manser welcoming you to Word by Word Conversations with Writers from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Since we have just relocated to the Sunday afternoon time slot, many of you may be new listeners to our literary soirees. The Word by Word show begins each month with hour-long discussions with individual or roundtable talks with novelists, biographers, and screenwriters. The second Sunday is Novel Idea with Rosemary Manchester and Suzanne Lang, and the third Sunday will be Word Temple Poetry with Catherine Hastings. Tonight's guest on Word by Word is the New York Times best-selling novelist Jamie Ford with his second novel based in Seattle's historic Chinatown, Songs of Willow Frost. So stay tuned as we chat about movie stars, orphans, and creating historic novels. That's right here on KRCB 91.1 FM North Bay Public Media. proud to welcome you to Word by Word. Hey, thanks for having me. You must have been very busy during the time you were finishing <laughs> up your first novel because you had recently married and formed a blended family with nine children and moved to Montana. Is this right? <laughs> Gosh, we sound like it sounds like I live in a polygamous compound or something like that. Yeah, we, we definitely with have... high walls yeah. all around, <laughs> right? Or, you know, furs or yeah, growing survivorless or com survivor you know compound, a doom bunker out in the prairie somewhere. No, we uh, we have a Brady Bunch family, so together we have six. And then from my wife's previous marriage, he, uh, and my wife's first husband uh, was, passed away, he had children um, who, are, who are adults or in their late 20s. And we kind of claim them and they claim us. And so our family is this very interesting diagram of people. But, you know, it makes Thanksgiving quite lively. Right. Right. It must. Yeah. yeah. I would imagine those table <laughs> conversations are something that worth uh, filming. And Oh, man. Even just uh, we kind of have a, an open door policy on Sunday nights. Our, our kids, we struggle to do just normal dinner because the kids have music, sports, gymnastics, jiu-jitsu, you know, whatever's going on. Right. Or I'm on the road or Alicia's a nurse, so she's working a night shift. So we try to have a nice and by nice, I just mean a dinner on Sunday right. nights with an open door to the kids can have all their friends over and and any uh, extraneous relatives are, are always welcome to come by. So tell me about Willow Frost, Songs of Willow Frost. Yeah. I read in here that you based it on a real life, in part, mm -hmm. a real life Chinese actress who was big in the 20s? Yeah, 30s? yeah, 20s and 30s, yeah. and a bit parts later. Um, I mean, the character Willow Frost has a little bit, you know, her DNA is is a combination of my mom's, my, my Chinese grandmother's, but definitely a, a healthy nod to Anna Mae Wong, who, you know, she was this, this very famous film actress who could only go so far in Hollywood, um, and she could only go so far in her personal life, too. She was a tragic figure on screen. And in many ways, had a tragic life off screen, um, and so there's a there's a lot of that infused into the story. That concept of this uh, noble romantic tragedy. Mm -hmm. I remember one of the things she was up for the lead in uh, Pearl Buck's oh, yeah. remake of. Um, tell me the the novel now. Uh, the Good Earth. The Good Earth. The Good Earth. And it went to a. Another actress who was heavily made up to look Chinese and didn't. Yeah, I went to a you know went to a Caucasian, <laughs> went to a Caucasian actress as as was the norm. You know, we had you know Varner Oland playing uh, you know either Doctor Fu Manchu or Charlie Chan. Right. 
Um, With a strange accent, no one understands. Yeah, right? yeah, I mean, I mean, all the way up to uh, your breakfast with you know breakfast at Tiffany's, right? Um, oh, the yeah, the Ma- Chinese character played by Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney, yeah. yeah. You know, we're not that far from removed from Yellow Face, and we now it's interesting. We seem to have solved the problem by going in the opposite direction with regards to Hollywood. So we have a lot of books that become movies, and instead of taking a Caucasian person and making them up to be Asian, they just recast it with a Caucasian actor to mm-hmm. sort of change mm-hmm. the location. Right. They've been doing a lot of flip-flops where the male role was originally written, and then they'll have a female role. Right, you know, right. Either. Just as bad, but, yeah. you know. Wearing high heels at the time. <laughs> I've also, interesting, you noticed that several times on your website you say, I'm a dude. I'm a dude, yes. Now, there, if those of you who have not looked up Jamie Ford on Google know why he might say that because there is another Jamie oh, Ford yes. who is a uh, female weightlifter who wears very small bikinis. Uh, if if bikinis at all, yes. yes. I, I, I am a dude. I have, I have one of those names <laughs> that uh, could go both ways, I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I do. I, I can look at – the search terms that bring people to my website, and they are there's people are searching for books or they're searching for this uh, one time Playboy model. Oh, was that she? Was she that was her? yes. And and if you're wondering, I'm the one without implants. Um, I'm all natural. <laughs> um, yeah, it's I, I imagine some poor schlep trying to Google his way into this uh, this bikini babe. And stumbles upon a, a site with nothing but books. It must be like, you know, Superman opening that trunk and finding kryptonite. Right. Or maybe he starts reading them. and Or maybe. Maybe, I, maybe I've enlightened yeah. some people. So you're set in Seattle. You you lived there for quite some time. Did. Yeah. Um, you, do you know the old Chinatown, which is now what, called International District or something? Yeah. I mean, it's, its technical name is the Chinatown International District. I think there was a, a, a naming war and some people didn't want to give up the name Chinatown. Um, but a lot of people just call it the ID, the International District. Um, the place I know, you know, I've known it since I was a little kid. And mm-hmm. it's its changed here and there. Um, like many Chinatowns, um, can be a bit of a time warp. Some things never change. So did you or were you living in Chinatown when you were young? No, no, I lived um I lived all around Seattle. I lived in Port Orchard, I lived on Bainbridge Island, I lived mm-hmm. up on Capitol Hill, which mm-hmm. is a stone's throw from Chinatown. And my dad was born and raised and my grandparents lived on Beacon Hill, which is on the other side of Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You tell some interesting stories online about your your ancestors, the one who changed his name to Ford from Min Chung? Yeah, Min Chung. He came over around 1861 um, through Angel Island. He ended up in Nevada working for the Borax Mining Company. And somewhere around... 20 Mule Team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and somewhere around, uh, around 1890, he changed his name to William Ford. Um, and no one really knows why. We suspect it had to do with buying property, but... Um, it could have, it, you know, it could just have been, it's like someone coming to this country now and, and choosing the name Chuck Norris or Clint Eastwood. You know, mm-hmm. they just want a red-blooded American-sounding name. Right, and the buying property reference, for those of our listeners who don't know, Chinese were excluded from owning right. property. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and and excluded from even renting in certain neighborhoods, either by books on, or laws on the books, or just, you know, social prejudice at the time. Right. 
So, you, but uh, your grandparents have an interesting um, meat cute, I guess we <laughs> yeah, call it. A meat cute, yeah. That's 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 one way of looking at it. I like that. Um, yeah, very very much uh, could have been a, you know could have been a, a, a rom com in a different context. Um, they met at a backroom gambling parlor. Uh, in the twenties, um, downstairs wasn't it in the basement? Uh, well, it, actually, it was the Wami Club, which has a ground floor and then it has an upstairs. Oh, okay. And um, the Wami has its roots in prohibition. Uh, if you, you know, before Vegas, if you wanted, you know, booze and live music and gambling and other kinds of uh, entertainment, um, salacious fun, if you will, you tended to go to places like Chinatown, and the Wami Club was. A place that was a, a cultural hub. It was, you know, Chinese people went, uh, Japanese, African American, white people went. Um, it was this place where people enjoyed the music and they enjoyed, um, you know, the spirits brought down by boat from Canada, free flowing mm-hmm. within the city of Seattle. Mm-hmm. Some um, millionaires made from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there was actually during Prohibition, there was a um, there was a police lieutenant whose wife had a children's show on the radio and she would drop clues in her radio show that would, <laughs> that would acknowledge which clubs had uh, had booze that weekend. I see. So that's the one you went to if you were listening. for. You said to listen to whatever the radio show was called. Yeah, it was like Aunt Linda's children's yeah. stories oh, okay. or something like that. And, yeah. you know, they would drop off. You know, she had these little – these clues that clued everyone in the city in. Um, but yeah, that's that's where my grandparents met. My my grandmother was a coat check girl, and my grandfather was a blackjack dealer. Wow. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's, it's it it cracks me up. I was I was in college, and I was going to art school, and I, I didn't know this about my grandparents at the time, and because you know how would you guess that? And they didn't they didn't really talk about it. But uh, my grandfather knew I was going to art school, so he goes to the basement and he trundles up with this. Jars, mason jar of calligraphy pens and dried uh, inks and things like that. And he hands it to me. And I'm thinking, wow, I, I, I didn't know you were an artist. And he said, artist, I used to draw craps tables. And that's what he did in his youth. Um, he always said that in the 20s and 30s, if you were Chinese, you had three career options, restaurant, laundry, or gambling. And mm-hmm. uh, he chose mm-hmm. the latter. All right. Well, you had to wear those fancy tuxedos. Yeah, absolutely. It looks spiffy all the time. Excellent. Yes, very true. Better choice. And, you know, better music. Yeah. And besides, you can mute this beautiful young woman who's checking the hats and coats, right? Yeah. Yeah. 60 years they were together. Yeah, 60 plus, 61, 62 years. They were together maybe even close to 65 years. Right. Well, that's an interesting question because one of the, so they were what age when they met and married? Oh, my grandmother must have been 19, and my okay. grandfather would have been, I think, 21. And he was the son of uh, not a – was he an American, Chinese? Yeah. What yeah. exactly what were the setups for the, someone, the, the, the next generation? So. Yeah, it's interesting because my, my family's been here for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And so both my grandparents were born in the U.S. Uh, my dad was born in the U.S., obviously. Um, so, you know, I guess I'm fourth generation. So we've been here a long time, um, which is and, – and, and everyone that comes with each subsequent generation, they bring their own level of cultural baggage. Um, but my family, we've, we were here so long. I do have people of my dad's generation that um, 
you know, had Caucasian wives or, or Japanese wives, and mm-hmm. which was not real common in in um, Chinese American communities. But we had been here so long that you know we did, really didn't think anything of it. Right. Well, but it was kind of it was unusual for someone to, at that time. I'm trying to remember and see what that would have been sixty years ago. When was this? They were. 1928. 28. That's when they met. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, or actually, uh, 29, I believe. Yeah. Were, there weren't a lot of Chinese women available no, no. to marry. Yeah. There, and, 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 and there was a division between the ones who were here. So you had people coming over who, well, well very few could come over. And so there were paper wives and mm-hmm. paper sons mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, in, unless you were... Um, or could, unless you were a merchant's wife or daughter or plugged into a higher economic scale, um, if you were just coming over as a migrant woman, um, you really weren't allowed. Um, and th- those that did come over at that, at that level were viewed askew. They were seen as coming over as prostitutes or coming over as, um, you know, they, there was a social stigma attached to them. Mm-hmm. Also, in those communities, they were seen as as very Chinese. And then here you have my grandmother, who's born here, and she's a Chinese American, and she's a woman of the twenties who's you know cut her hair and let her stockings down. Um, and so, you, flapper. She's a flat. Yeah, she's a flapper. <laughs> you know, there was there there are divisions even within the small minority of, of Chinese in America at the time, which I think is really fascinating. Well, that takes us right into the Songs of Willow Frost. Sure. The story, the backstory, if I can bring it to us briefly, is that there is a young Chinese woman who um, whose mother remarries after mm-hmm. the father dies, mm-hmm. and she calls him uncle. She's yes. asked to call him uncle. He's a uncouth, to put it politely, man. Right. And... Um, she ends up getting pregnant um, as a teenager and has a young son and after a number of years is forced to put him in an orphanage. Mm-hmm. So his name is William. And um, William is in an orphanage that's, that's run by nuns, mm-hmm. which is very common at this time. Sure. This is the 19... This is the 20s uh, and 30s. 30s, mm-hmm. right. And um, he actually had to... His mother had to say that he became a Catholic and signed a paper that sure. that mm-hmm. allowed him to you know, receive the, the benefits of being in a Catholic uh, orphanage. But it's sort of like it's a bit of Orphan Annie and, uh, I don't know, Oliver Twist all combined. Because sure, sure. here's the part I'd like to have you read. It's when um, the nun puts him into the... Um, the solitary confinement. Oh, okay. Wow, okay. So if you can just read where it says start okay. and then go to stop because we're going to meet an important character. Yeah, here. absolutely. Yeah, there's there's definitely a, a great canon of, of, of the orphan in in Western literature. Um, and, I, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating literary landscape. This passage I'm going to read is called Alone Together. And what's happened is William has got into a a shoving match with one of the other boys at the school regarding a radio program where he, he, uh, someone changed the channel and uh, Sister Briganti is the the woman in charge and she confines William to the coat closet for the night as his punishment. But like so many orphans, William most feared being alone. It's just one night, he reasoned. 
After five years of sleeping in the same room with two dozen other boys, the absence of snoring, giggling, whispering, even the squeaking of old bed springs left nothing but the sound of the timber shifting, pipes groaning, and the storm winds rattling the window panes. The unsettling sounds of emptiness, the chords of solitude, caused William to feel a rise of panic as the echoes of a grandfather clock chimed somewhere two stories above, reminding him just how long that night would be. I didn't have a reason to stay. William's words echoed in his mind. In the darkness, he shoved aside the shoes and boots. He pulled down two woolen coats and, like some feral creature, tried to create a makeshift bed. But the tinkling of metal hangers and the swaying shapes in the dark kept him awake. Plus, he he thought he heard footsteps or light tapping. It's just the creaking of floorboards, William thought. This building is new and still settling. He knew it was doubtful that Sister Brigante had changed her mind about his punishment. If anything, she'd soon forget about him until someone needed a raincoat or until he wet the floor, whichever came first the next day. He pulled down another coat and was using it as a blanket when he heard the unmistakable sound of a key rattling in the lock. He reached up and felt the doorknob turn, then jumped back. William? A girl's voice whispered as the door cracked open. Charlotte? He asked the shape in the dark. Then he felt her hand touch his arm as she crawled in next to him, sitting with her back against the wall, her knees up, her cane in front of her. He poked his head out into the blackened hallway. A faint glow came from down the corridor. A nightlight flickered off and on as the rain pounded and lightning flashed. He heard a loud rumble in the distance as he closed the door. What are you doing here? How did you... Sister B leaves the key in the candle drawer in the hallway. I always hear her put it away, Charlotte said, her voice quavering. I I don't like nights like this, especially in my cottage. Sometimes I come down here and hide when the weather is this bad. She sniffled and wiped her nose on the sleeve of her long flannel nightgown. It's just a thunderstorm, William said. We're in a big building. It's completely safe, even if the power goes out. Lightning flashed beneath the door, illuminating Charlotte as she pulled her knees tighter against her chest and thunder rattled the building. He wrapped a coat around her even as she flinched. Would it be better if I left you alone? He asked, unsure of where he might go. She shook her head. Please stay. Are you afraid of the dark? It's it's okay if you are. As soon as he said it, he realized what a ridiculous statement that was. He was about to apologize. I'm not afraid of the dark. The storm will pass, I promise. I'm not afraid of the storm either. William sat in the darkness, confused but relieved to have her company, anyone's company. Charlotte had been his best friend, and, until Sonny arrived, his only friend. He scooted over and sat next to her. She leaned into him, resting her head on his shoulder. Then she reached up, hung her cane from the rack overhead, and offered him part of the coat. He wrapped it around the two of them. As her shoulders shook, she was wet, trembling, and shivering. Okay. Charlotte's an important part of William's life. She is. She's his best friend. She's his confidant. Um, She's a sightless girl who has uh, depth and perception beyond uh, what you would imagine. Um, She feels things more than she sees them. Mm -hmm. And it allows him to do the same. Yeah. I mean, she's a sounding board for William. She's also uh, an instigator, if you will, a bit of his conscience sometimes. Um, she is the, uh, at, at times, she's the Jiminy Cricket to his Pinocchio. <laughs> it's interesting that, that many of the people we meet, many of the people who are uh, closer to William, 
are the <clears throat> unadoptables mm. for one reason mm -hmm. or another. Charlotte because she can't see, William because he's Chinese, Sonny for his background. Um, and the ones, the cute ones, the pretty ones, yeah. they're already gone. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's it's like people adopting puppies. People come and get the cute ones, the ones that bite, the ones that are not housebroken, the ones, the mangy ones um, are not people's favorites. And, and William and Charlotte and Sonny are the outsiders within a group of outsiders. Mm -hmm. The whole city is filled with outsiders at this time, though. You will go along, there's, there's scenes where we walk, walk along the streets and we see the you know, the literal lines of people around the block waiting for a handout. Men in, you know, wearing their only thing that they own. Right. Shoes held together with twine and, you know, cardboard. Yeah. I mean, so south of Seattle was a large Hooverville, um, you know, with a third of the population being Named out of work. Named after our famous president <laughs> yeah. at the time. Yeah. yeah. They even had a, a mayor of Hooverville. I mean, I think a lot of the Hoovervilles had their own makeshift leadership. But but Seattle is is a, is a city that just ten years earlier had a general strike, um, so there's a huge labor movement going on at the time. Um, there's street corner Trotskyism. There are people trying to find their way out of this economic calamity, and so people are afraid of all the isms, communism, fascism, socialism, um, almost a, an echo uh, of what we see going on today. Um, and then you have this, you know, it's this wonderful confluence of ethnicities all scratching to survive in this city. And then set amid that um, parade of misery and occasional opportunities is William and Charlotte as they uh, try to find Willow Frost. Willow Frost. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that uh, we discover Willow Frost is because uh, all the boys— <laughs> in the orphanage, celebrate the same birthday. They do. And one of the things they do is they go to the movies. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to get go to go to the movies. So um, let's start as uh, they go into this uh, very ornate sure. movie theater, of which there were quite a number in downtown Seattle. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, in its heyday, there were 80 movie theaters in Seattle in the in the, the 20s and 30s. Everything from grand movie palaces to, you know, second-run uh, corner theaters. Mm -hmm. I mean, far more than, than exist now. Yeah, but there were 3,000-seat auditoriums. Yeah, wow. I mean, I just, I love the thought of going to see, even if it's a silent film, to see a silent film in a, a giant auditorium where there would be a live band in tuxedos, or, or, or orchestra, organ. Or, right. or or a giant uh, giant organ where they're playing these things. I think it's it's just a, it's it's a different era. It's and uh, I think uh, I think I was born in the wrong era sometimes. Um, but this is this is uh, they're at the theater. This is the orphans' one big day out on their collective. The orphan boys, the orphan girls, celebrate a different day. They do. They celebrate uh, uh, for Mother a different. Cur Mother Cabrini's birthday, right? And uh, for the for the boys, they celebrate the commemoration of Pope Leo the Twelfth as their collective birthday, their their giant holiday, and their one big day out. And this is uh, William at the theater. When the bright red doors finally swept open, Sister Briganti put her hand on his shoulder and rushed Sonny and him to their seats. Be good boys, and whatever you do, be quiet. Keep to yourselves, and don't make eye contact with the ushers, she whispered. William nodded, but didn't understand until he glanced up and saw that the balcony was filled with colored boys and a few Indian kids like Sonny. 
There must have been a separate entrance in the alley. Am I colored? William wondered. And if so, what color am I? They shared the popcorn, and he sat lower, sinking into the purple velvet. As the footlights dimmed and the plush curtains were drawn, a player piano came to life, accompanying black-and-white cartoons with Betty Boop and Barnacle Bill. William knew that, for the little boys, this was the best part. Some would barely make it through the previews or the movie-toned follies. They ended up sleeping through most of the feature film, dreaming in Technicolor. When the follies reel finally began, William managed to sing along with the rest to musical numbers by Jackie Cooper and the Lane sisters, and he laughed at the antics of Step and Fetch It, who had everyone in stitches. He laughed even harder than the kids in the balcony. But silence swept the audience as a new performer crooned Dream a Little Dream of Me, staring wistfully into the camera. At first, William thought, she looks like Myrna Loy in The Black Watch. But she wasn't just wearing makeup, she was Chinese like Anna Mae Wong, the only Oriental star he'd ever seen. Her, dis her distinctive looks and honeyed voice drew wolf whistles from the older boys, which drew reprimands from Sister Briganti, who cursed in Latin and Italian. But as William stared at the flickering screen, he was stunned, silent, mouth agape, popcorn spilling. The singer was introduced as Willow Frost, a stage name William almost said out loud. It had to be. And best of all, Willow and Steppen and a host of the movie tone performers would be appearing live at a theater near you. In Vancouver, Portland, Spokane, and Seattle, tickets available now. Get them before they're all sold out. Sonny elbowed William and said, Boy, I'd do anything to see that show. I have to go, was all William could manage to say, still staring at the afterimage on the dark screen while listening to the opening score of Cimarron, which sounded farther and farther away, like Oklahoma. Keep on wishing, Willie. Maybe it was his imagination, or perhaps he was daydreaming once again, but William knew he had to meet her in person because he had once known her by another name. He was sure of it. With his next-door neighbors in Chinatown, she went by Lu's song, but he'd simply called her Ama. He had to say those words again. He had to know if she'd hear his voice, if she'd recognize him from five long years away. Because Willow Frost is a lot of things, William thought. A singer, a dancer, a movie star. But most of all, Willow Frost is my mother. Uh-huh. So it's just coincidence that he ends up at that movie theater, or is it? Um, I mean, I know you were the one pulling the strings, but I, yeah, yeah, you're asking the puppet master, <laughs> which which uh, which moves are on purpose. Um, I think it's it's fate and happenstance. Um, some perhaps will think uh, maybe Sister Briganti had a hand in this. Um, it's really left for the reader to determine. But he's there, he sees this actress, he hears her voice, and he's certain that that's his mother, someone that he last saw when he was seven years old as he watched her body being carried out of their apartment and taken to a hospital. And he's since been led to believe that she's passed away. You are listening to Word by Word, conversations with the writers from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Tonight's guest is the New York Times bestselling novelist Jamie Ford with his second novel based in Seattle's historic Chinatown, Songs of Willow Frost. Well, we have the setup for a um, tearjerker of a story. Is that a good way to put it? A melodrama of the first order. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I, 
I like complicated family stories, and I'm partial. I have a deep abiding weakness for love stories, and I like stories. <laughs> I like stories that are designed to break your heart. But but it's always my my promise as a novelist that if I do break your heart, it's it's my intention to put the pieces back together again by the by the by at some point in the story. Hopefully those you know hopefully in better working condition. Right. So we're in 1934 when the story opens. He's in the orphanage. Mm-hmm. He's about 12. He's yeah, about yep. 12 years old. Going to be having his birthday turning 13, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And Or thereabouts. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. approximately. Right, approximately. Yeah. And uh, so we've set the, the problem up. We've got this uh, person basically locked into a very high-walled compound mm-hmm. with, you know, people keeping the keys, you know, tied around their waist mm-hmm. or whatever they kept them. And um, he cannot come and go, he, but he, he desperately needs to. Yeah, I mean, he Char, uh, Charlotte convinces him to to go find Willow Frost, that to go find his mother, if indeed Willow Frost is his mother, that she's going to be in town for a couple of weeks um, doing performances in the Northwest, and she is um, she is the instigator. She's the one that's and she she too. No one's coming back for her. So what do they have to lose? In fact, she is being threatened with being sent to a home for people like you or like her. Yeah, I mean, she's blind. And so there are places for kids to go. And the Sacred Heart Orphanage, as much as they want to do right by Charlotte, they eventually realize that Charlotte needs to be someplace among her sightless peers where they can learn better life skills. Like making brooms. Like making broomsticks all day in a you know, in a dimly lit room. And and she's aware of that. She's, she's aware that these are places that people go and they don't, you know, they're, they're, they're blind, but suddenly their world experience is cut off, um, is diminished to an even greater degree. And she doesn't really want any part of that. Mm-hmm. So she picks up a plan and says to William, you should go. And William <laughs> says, uh, we should go. Yeah. And they, and they end up, they end up escaping, and the way they do it is, um, you know, books can be a uh, figurative escape, and in this case, books are a literal escape. In that, in 1931, the Seattle Public Library System, the King County Library System, created the first bookmobile, which would go to places like Sacred Heart. Sacred Heart was a real place, and the real bookmobile did indeed come once a week. This large truck of a <laughs> of a contraption, and would because the kids couldn't leave, they'd bring the library to the kids, and so they escape by sneaking into the back of the bookmobile and and into one of the book bins and burying themselves with with hardbacks. Mm-hmm. That's how they get That's how into they get the out. city, right. right? And then they find their way to a theater, and then they find their way to the Fifth Avenue Theater, which is still there. It's it's one of the, the grand movie palaces that's been saved, which is interesting because the Fifth Avenue has a Chinese motif. It's um, it's it's an Asian-themed theater, so it has a huge dragon coming out of the ceiling. Sort of like Grauman's Chinese in Hollywood? Very much. Yeah, exactly. That same era. And they go and they find Willow Frost. Mm-hmm. The real person. Re- and and several a couple of other people they find Stephen Fetchett. Yeah, they, they yeah Willow was on traveling tour with, with her. With Stephen Fetchett and a man and, named Asa 
Yeah, Asa uh, Asa Berger. Now, is that a real person? Um, <laughs> the MC? Um, he, or he, he composite? He's a he's a he's a composite, but I, I really like the idea of um, the broken comedian. You know, I, I've I've known a few stand up comics, and I do, I'm a I'm a firm believer that that laughter is a is a disguise for emotional pain and so we have Aza who is a world war 1 veteran who's suffering from shell shock and he's and he his his relief is humor and and alcohol mm-hmm. um it makes for him you know, to put his pain to good use but he's also the one who lets the kids come in the back door yeah, he figures, okay, why not? They must be rabid fans. Gives them tickets. He gives them tickets. He sees them in the alley. They've been there. They haven't left all day. Uh, he feels for them a little bit, lets them in the back door where they go and find uh, this mysterious person. Who does not acknowledge William? Not at first. Um, I mean, William may not quite recognize it. Um, I, I, the reader will probably recognize it. But both well, this of, reader did. Okay, yeah, both both of them have a moment where they're a little trepidatious to engage the other. It's almost like looking at a mirage. You're you're so desperate, but you're so fearful of what the reality might actually be. Mm-hmm. Now, on a normal book, then it would go forward from there. But what you do cleverly is mm-hmm. we go back in time. We do. We go back about twelve years. Yeah, yeah, we we go back to b- before uh, a few years before William was born, and you know there there is a bit of a tearful reunion between mother and son, and that's when we enter Willow's story. And Willow's story is one of where we we gain an understanding of um, the loss and and tragedy of the time uh, of what it means to be not just a woman but a Chinese American woman during that time where you're a minority within a minority and the struggles that she faces and um, the circumstances that led to her becoming pregnant with, with William and ultimately why she had to give him up. Um, And she meets a a young man named Colin and there were definite love story aspects um, on the other corners of the, the stage that's being set for the story uh, for the reader um, and it's all about the decisions that a young girl named Lu Song must make along the way, and that leads her to eventually become Willow Frost. But somewhere in that story, we realize that success um, doesn't always equal happiness. Right. Well, the interesting thing that's going on—you make reference, in fact, um, after her mother dies, and the you mm-hmm. know the. The stepsisters move in with the uncle, yeah, her stepfather. Um, someone makes so it says light of it and says it's like the Chinese version of Cinderella. And I can't remember the name, the Chinese name of the story. Right, right, right. And she says yes, but there's not going to be any golden, you know, prince there's, and a fairy godmother in this one. Yeah, there's no. She's not expecting a happy ending. She's just, um, but she is the suddenly the handmaiden to some very unsavory people mm-hmm. and smelly people and smelly people <laughs> yes that too but th- this is one of the things that i found really fascinating to think about in a different mindset you know from our age and generation and you know left coast upbringing because you were born in uh, eureka right i was born in eureka yeah mm-hmm. and i everybody you know locally say hi 
<laughs> Hello to everyone in the real Northern California, Eureka Crescent City. Represent. Okay. And um, that e- that you would think that there were so few female Chinese mm, yeah. that they would be put somewhat on a pedestal, you know, and mm. be treated with respect, mm-hmm. certainly. And they're not. They're put in a in, in many ways, you know, a lower, lower, mm. lower, lower level. You know, literally the one sifting the ashes kind of thing. Uh, doing the laundry, doing all the hard work, having the children, but only it would be happy and they'd only celebrate if it was a male born. Yeah. I mean, it's it's confounding because there was a shortage of, of Chinese women, but the ones that were here, they still existed on the margins of Chinese American society. I mean... I mean, there are the beautiful exceptions, the merchants' wives and daughters and things like that. But the average Chinese woman, um, you know, we're still seen as a a servant in the household, someone to cook and clean and someone not to be seen, someone that only real purpose is to bear another son um, who would carry on the family name. And, and, And there were situations where young girls were adopted, but they were adopted perhaps by childless couples who just wanted someone to take care of them as they got older, but had no real affection for this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Willow is, she's caught between worlds. She's she's too American for her Chinese community in certain ways, and she's too Chinese for the rest of the world. Well, not only is she too Chinese, she is also... Um very talented. And she is. And the trouble with being talented, being a <laughs> singer, uh, her mother being an opera singer, mm-hmm. I mean, a Chinese opera, yep. um, was that immediately put you in a different category of even females, you know, the, the oh, yeah. ones who were the women of the night rather than... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Especially at a time when, um, you know, traditional Chinese opera, the female roles were played by men and the few, the few women that found their way into the world of the theater. They were they were not seen as respectable people. Yeah. Her mother dies. I don't think giving uh, telling no. that mm-hmm. is too much to let people know. So um Willow or she's called then Lu Song, um just before her mother's death she comes home one afternoon when she's been working, interestingly enough, singing on a uh in front of a store that mm-hmm. sold um uh, sheet music, sheet music, mm-hmm. and player pianos. Yep, she works as a song plugger, which mm-hmm. was a which was a job at the time where, you know, this is this is just before radio, and um, you know, people if they have a a piano in their home, um, you know, where else are you going to hear the song? So they would music stores would hire song pluggers to stand out in front of their stores and sing the songs while someone played, and they were paid by the page of the sheet music that they sold. Well, I'd like to have you read this part. Be- because what it does, and I'm not trying to give away too much, sure, no. but this, and it's a little long, it's a couple of pages. Okay. This includes so much information and so many building blocks that are going to be important in other parts of the story. Okay. Okay. You'll see why I picked it. Sure, see if you agree. Sure. Well, we can talk about that later. Okay. Well, obviously where it says start. Do you need yeah. any setup for that? Yeah. Well, this is, this is where Lu Song's mother is, is on her deathbed. It's really just a matter of time. And she comes home, and her stepfather doesn't really want to be a father in any way. He wants to be called Uncle Leo. And he comes home, and this is, uh, this, this is, this is Lu Song coming home, and, and this is her meeting him in the alley. When Lu Song reached the front step, Uncle Leo was coming out the door. He offered her a large box overflowing with her mother's belongings. 
Take this to the garbage, he said. Your ama won't be needing these things anymore, and I can't sell any of this. Who would buy? Lusong stared at the box in disbelief. She could smell her mother's lilac perfume on an old scarf, and she felt the finality of Uncle Leo's callous gesture as he regarded an old brush filled with her mother's hair, which in recent days had been falling out in clumps. Lusong's fingers trembled as she touched the dress her mother had worn the last time she had been strong enough to leave the house, which seemed like a lifetime ago. Everything here was laden with sentiment, but held no monetary value. Leo must have kept those things, or gambled them away. But all of this belongs to my family, Lusong said. She nearly broke down sobbing as she realized she didn't say belonged to my mother. The tightness in Lusong's chest, the lump in her throat, made her feel as though she'd already lost her ama. Uncle Leo dropped the box onto the pavement. He pulled up his suspenders and flared his nostrils. Fine, he barked. Choose one thing to keep, but the rest... He waved his hand dismissively. All bad luck. Lusong picked up the box and slowly walked down the alley as she heard Uncle Leo slam the door. She saw a pile of her mother's possessions, the remnants of her family, good and bad memories strewn among yesterday's refuse. Your superstitions haunt the both of us, Uncle, Lusong thought. She set the box down next to the rest of her mother's belongings and knelt on the wet, mossy pavement amid orange peels, fish bones, and tattered cigarette butts. She reverently touched her mother's old possessions as if they were alive. Her blouses, her hats, shoes, slips, books, trinkets, and curios from the theater. Choose one thing. Lusong nodded when she found her mother's vaudeville case, a cracked valise filled with stage makeup, headpieces, satin, footwear, and assorted costume jewelry. The leather was spattered with used coffee grounds. She wiped it clean with her bare hands. The case had been an engagement present from her father and was stamped with ports of entry, Seattle, Vancouver, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, mementos of a time when her parents were barely out of their teens. They traveled from city to city with a troupe of other performers, catering to audience of migrant workers and high-minded Caucasian socialites who wanted to indulge in something exotic. Lusong dug through a box and found her mother's final costume, the elegant gown with long tassels, shimmering sequins, and silver beads. She carefully folded the embroidered silk and tucked it into the suitcase, along with a small photo album of old letters, as much as would fit. She knelt on the case to close it, then buckled it shut. She thought about taking more things, but Uncle Leo would probably just burn them if he found them. In his mind, it was bad fortune to keep anything so personal, because after death, they might draw the spirit back. Aha. Uh-huh. So we have a combination of 1920s modernity, mm-hmm. um, ancient Tao mysticism, mm-hmm. uh, family traditions. Sure. Um, doing it a certain way, a Chinese way, a way that you do not sure necessarily why, mm-hmm. but everyone's done that for a long, long, long mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So that's how you do it. Right. And one of the things is to get rid of the possessions of someone who usually after death, but mm-hmm. in this case before they're dead, because uh, it might they might want to come back for them. Yeah, I mean Uncle Leo, he. He's a he's a he's wedded to his superstitions. He's he's someone who uh, believes his good or bad fortune is uh, related to how he adheres to certain traditions. Mm-hmm. He's maybe not a true believer, but he's not going to tempt fate, even if it seems cruel to Lusong and those around him. 
Now, it, it makes reference, in, in the story, you talk about uh, Willow's mother as being a member of a, the, uh, a, the Peking Opera Company or the uh, Chinese uh, Opera Company. Yeah, actually a Cantonese Opera a Company. Cantonese mm-hmm. Opera. And that, was that the one in the China Gate? To China Garden Restaurant, that still the China Gate Restaurant still exists. Um, and on on the website that linked from mm-hmm, your website, mm-hmm. it says that it was used to house the Peking Opera Company on Seventh Street. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was that was the place. Um, a, a, as I had researched it, I was I. It was my understanding that it was built for the Peking Opera. This is the this what that, says Peking yeah, Opera Company, right? But, but in actuality, I I think it was the Cantonese Opera. But it may just be a, a historian's discretion. Yeah, yeah. What you called it in the translation and the who did what, which brings right. up another interesting sure. thing. At the time, your your um, uh, great grandfather, I guess, was mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. came from uh, Kaiping mm-hmm. or Hoiping. Yeah. Interestingly enough, when I looked it up, it said it gave me several different versions of it because it had a Cantonese version, right, and a uh, Taishanese Kaipanese version. Right, and you have the people in the book, the Chinese, how they speak, what dialect they use, which is really not mm-hmm. a dialect; it's mm-hmm. a different language. Um, identifies them immediately, just like as somebody from this country, if they come from the deep south. Or, oh yeah, very much yeah, so. Right, yeah, that was that was or New England or wherever. Oh yeah, or, for, or from te- from Chicago yeah, or, Texas. or there's a Detroit accent. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, my father, he and he was born. Or they're a boot people from Canada. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> those, those Canadians. Right. Um, my, my dad, when he was a kid, he went to Chinese school after public school. I and mean, he was born here. But my grandmother was very concerned and wanted him to learn city Cantonese because uh-huh. he did have that country accent, which um, as you as you put it, it, it was – like talking to someone and realizing they come from uh, Appalachia or the Ozarks or something like that. My grandmother was very concerned with appearances, I suppose, and and wanted my uh, my father not to be judged um, according to his accent. So he would go to learn city Cantonese, city Cantonese, mm-hmm. not English, not English. No, yeah, he was actually not allowed to speak English in the household really? as a child. Yeah, wow. my my grandmother really wanted him to retain the language. Um, and then the opposite effect happened when I was born. My dad didn't want me to speak Chinese. He wanted me to learn only English. Now, Colin, every time you meet him, he's a uh, an actor mm-hmm. who came from China, born in China, and um, has left his family and come to the United States. He's basically one of those who gets support from his father. Mm-hmm. And he every time he speaks, there's a reference, or almost every time, about how his accent is different. Yeah, I, I always envision Colin as having uh, a slightly English uh, accent, and by by English, you know, a UK derivation. Hong Kong English. Yeah, yeah, okay. Hong Kong English, because it was a British colony. Shanghai English. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So, his, so his English would would have uh, a little bit more of the Queen's English to it than right. Right. Um, than an American uh, coarseness to it, um, which in this case lends him a certain air of refinement, whether he lives up to that or if that refinement is, is earned or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives him the appearance of, uh, of, of being more of a society, uh, continental gentleman. Now, he is an actor, and we'll talk about him a little bit. Sure. And one of the things he ends up doing, he, he does all kinds of different things. He uh, is typecast, of course, as Chinese. Mm-hmm. And um, usually the one who walks on and, you know, stands in the background holding a, mm. 
serving tray or something sure. like that. Um, but he was, uh, he managed to get uh, Willow into a movie, mm -hmm. which was being made up in Tacoma. Mm -hmm. And I looked it up because again, you know, the links from your site made it. Sure, really easy sure. And the movie that was made was a silent melodrama called Eyes of the Totem. Mm -hmm. Now, tell me a little bit about researching a book, because this is a historical romance, shall we call it? Sure, sure. And the romance really is between the mother and son. Yeah. Yeah. And um, although there's some others too, but mostly the mother and son. Yeah, it's it's a mother and son familial love story, even though there's there's Lou Song and Colin and there's William and Charlotte and there's some other emotional things going on. Right, right. So you're doing the research, and uh, do you collect this in a in a I don't know a laundry basket or online <laughs> yeah. clips or what? It's all over my floor, uh, <laughs> my office, um, piles of paper. And then my golden retriever comes in and lays on it all. Uh -huh. um, no, I, I print out big stacks of research in categories, um, and part you know there'll be a section for the film industry and a section for. Um, you know, uh, prohibition or something like that. Um, but yeah, the, the studio, the HC Weaver studio, they, the movie depicted in the book was the movie that was actually filmed there in Tacoma. Mm -hmm. Um, eyes of the totem and eyes of the totem. And this of... picture that I put online, you know, on my web here yeah. is shows the Chinese restaurant that they're going into. Yeah. There, I mean, there's a, there's a great old hotel downtown Tacoma that's still there. And they turned that hotel into this, um, this Chinese cabaret, this nightclub, um, it was a bit of a, uh, a den of inequity as it's portrayed on film. And so they did have a lot of uh, Chinese extras mm -hmm. in, in two the, of which we scene. know from the book, Colin and Willow. <laughs> two of those in the book just happened to be Colin and Willow. Yeah. That's it's, and it's, it's an important pivotal, uh, an important pivotal moment in the book. Mm-hmm. Though they don't really know it at the time. They don't know no, what they're getting but there's into. there's several things start because of that uh, that movie, which does not exist anymore. As of the totem apparently is not available. Yeah. All the movies produced by H.C. Weaver, um, they don't exist anymore. The they, third largest uh, film studio in the country at the mm -hmm. time. Yeah. yeah. There's a nice visual record of photographs of- That's where I found this. Yeah. But the, the actual films are lost to us or are in some- basement vault in Hollywood that mm. will be discovered 50 years from now. Yeah, well, we keep finding things in barns and stuff, so <laughs> yeah. it's entirely possible, right? So that's that's part of the thing you did. You looked about the history of the movie-making business, and this in part has to do with your family, because you have a relative who was in the movies. I do. And he changed his name from Ford. Yeah, that was my to, grandfather. To Chung, right? Yeah, my, my grandfather. Um uh, it it cracks me up because his name his given name was was George Ford um George Ford senior my dad was George Ford junior and he he worked in Hollywood from 1931 up into the early 50s um as a bit player as an extra uh, he was in movies like Duel in the Sun and Keys of the Kingdom um though uncredited mm -hmm. um he's an extra and i i have his screen actors guild card and on it it's his name is george chung so he he was by birth given a caucasian name and then he had to choose a, a chinese family name as a stage name because they would you know if you'd imagine they have a casting session and they call for george ford and this chinese guy walks out <laughs> it's got it's got to be problematic right. yeah yeah so it, it again you're 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 dabbling back into your own history for some kind of the 
framework to put. Oh this yeah, in. I mean, I, I love. I have a lot of photographs of of uh, my grandfather on the set. I have his Hollywood headshots from you know nineteen thirty one. I mean, he's, and, and he's just dashing in in the style of that time period. Um, it's 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 really uh, a cool glimpse at a at a time that's lost to us. Mm-hmm. Well, some of it's lost. Some of it's uh, still in. Yeah, some of the movies still exist. Movies yeah, still out there. Right? Yeah. which is which is. Fascinating. There were so many shorts made, you know, these little... Oh, yeah, yeah. the short two-reelers, single-reelers. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting how fame comes to someone. I'm going to read you a little, have you read a little part okay. about how Willow becomes famous, or the first time becomes famous. Sure. Um, she is singing, as we've mentioned, outside of Mr. Butterfield's mm-hmm. Emporium, where he sells sheet music, primarily sheet music, and then he got into player pianos. Mm-hmm. And she has an arrangement with him where... She will make a commission. Right. Uh, starts out a nickel uh, per, or, per, per, page. Know, per page mm-hmm. of sheet music, and then it goes up. She's she's getting more, and she's even getting a percentage of the sales of the player pianos and any reels that go with it. So let's uh, see how uh, this fame comes to her. Sure. Mr. Butterfield was right. The next day, the rubbernecker bus came by twice. Once in the morning and once in the afternoon, loaded with gawkers who marveled at Lou's song. Some even got off the bus and had her sign their sheet music. One well-heeled woman handed her a small leather book and a pencil. Just your name, dear, she said. And after Lou's song wrote her name in Chinese, the woman asked again, No, your real name. What's your name in English? Lu song hesitated, confused, then signed Willow. She wondered if this was what it had been like for her ama on the evening of her grand performance. She wondered if her mother had had any inkling of how bad things would soon get. By day's end, Mr. Butterfield was humming a happy tune and counting the money he'd made. We'll need to double our orders of sheet music, he said, as he sat down on an old leather stool and unscrewed his hip flask. He offered it to Lu Song, who shook her head and smiled politely. I haven't played that much since I was your age, he said. Who knows? We keep this up, kid. I might even sell a few of the new welties. Lusong took a dusting rag and wiped down one of the enormous pianolas. Do I get a commission on one of these as well? she asked. Mr. Butterfield took another swig. Missy, if we sell one of the player pianos, I'll give you ten percent, and ten percent of every roll of music that goes with it to boot. Though you might have to shorten your skirt a bit if you expect to attract those kind of dollars. Your voice isn't your only sales tool, you know. Lusong ignored his comment about her skirt and played a few notes on the piano. She didn't know much, just some jazz stinger she'd heard in the neighborhood and had taught herself to play. She plunked away, then left the store on an open cord. As she walked to the trolley stand, she contemplated earning $25 per piano, 50 for a deluxe model, enough to move out on her own for a while at least. She wondered if she'd be able to enroll in school again, or if she'd need a parent, and would Uncle Leo and Auntie Ng even let her leave. She felt tightness in her chest, her gut. She hated the thought of being alone, but hated the notion of going home even more. Then she remembered that even if she sold one of the auto pianos, the money would probably go directly to her uncle. She slumped onto a cold iron bench next to a man reading a copy of the Seattle Star. As she glanced at the paper, she recognized the dress on the back page, her mother's dress, the same dress she was wearing. The feature photo was of her, singing in front of Butterfields. The man slowly lowered the newspaper, and she recognized his eyes and his gentle smile. Not bad for black and white, Collins said, with his curious accent. 
as he folded the paper and handed it to her. But you'd look much better in kinema color. Aha. And so she is famous. She's on the newspaper. She's made the grade, so she's, to speak. She's made the news, Sounds, and now Colin wants to get her on the screen. That's right. That's his goal. So one of the things we do in this show is we have a lot of people who listen who are writers, and I sure, love to ask yeah. writers what advice you would give to them, other than, you know, seat, <laughs> seat time, of course. <laughs> um, uh, really, the best advice I can give is, is advice that was given to me, and that was if you have a favorite author or an author whose work you really admire, don't read that author while you're trying to write. And I know it might be inspiring, but it, I always say it's like it's like trying to lose weight and only reading Vogue magazine. You'll die a death of comparison. You will um, – you know, it's, it's – it's too discouraging. So what I actually encouraged, I've always encouraged expiring authors to go the opposite way. And it's the advice someone gave me. And they said, go to a garage sale, buy three out of print books for a nickel a piece, the worst, awful, boringest, trashiest, strangest out of print books you can find and force yourself to read them with a writer's perspective. Look at how the story is being told. Look at how the language is being used. And if you read with a writer's I, you'll, you'll pick apart these books. And then when you sit down to write again, you'll notice when you make the same mistakes. Um, I did that myself and it was really, really helpful. So what three books did you read? (laughs) I knew you were going to ask that. (laughs) Any one of them or the gist of them? Um, yeah, I read, I read, I read a bunch. Um, but the one that stands out more than anything, and and it's just the name, it was called A Goomba's Guide to Life. And it was about. So it was a nonfiction. Yeah, well, it was kind of like a book on how to, you know, how to live like a gangster. The Goomba being the uh, the non-familiar friend of. The, yeah, yeah. Yes. I, and I thought that was it was one of those ones I literally bought at a garage sale. I'm like, okay, this is one of the ones I'll force myself to read this. Um, obviously, not great prose, not great storytelling, not great anything, but you know, somehow it got published, and um, <laughs> you can only get better from there. Learn from someone else's mistakes. Yep. Right. Jamie Ford, Songs of Willow Frost, thank you so much for coming to Word by Word. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, where tonight's guest was the New York Times bestselling novelist Jamie Ford, talking about his second novel based in Seattle's historic Chinatown, Songs of Willow Frost. Our studio engineer for tonight's broadcast is Mark Fuller. Our program director is Robin Pressman. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I'm your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to tune in from 7 to 8 on Wednesday evening, December 4th, with our annual holiday broadcast featuring Copperfield's book buyers Cheryl Cotler and Michelle Bella with their list of suggestions for gift books. Until then, we wish you a warm and welcoming Thanksgiving Day. <laughs>